Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You don't need much more evidence these days that our country is badly divided than to toggle back and forth any evening between Fox News and MSNBC. There are two perspectives on the same day's events that might be coming from two different universes. We seem to have become a nation of tribes. We didn't set out on Clear and Vivid to explore this divide, but in our conversations about connecting and communicating, the topic kept coming up from people as diverse as politicians, comedians, and psychologists. I heard not only possible reasons for the current tribalism, but I also heard some possible solutions. Here's the former Basketball Hall of Famer and U.S. Senator Bill Bradley on how things have changed in the Senate since he last served there in 1997. Is it a myth that in the old days they used to go out for a beer afterwards and socialize and now they don't? Uh, no, I don't think it's a myth. <laughs> when I got there, for example, right off the Senate floor and the sergeant-at-arms office was a room where you go in and, you know, Republicans and Democrats have a drink in the late afternoon if you want one. And um, there was a senator's dining room, one table Republican, one table Democrat, but the same senator's dining room. Um, I think the dining room is still there. Uh, don't think the sergeant-at-arms uh, afternoon highball room is there. Um, but So know. tell me that again. That that sounds interesting. I, I wouldn't expect that. On government property, the sergeant-at-arms serves highballs at, at well, 5 o'clock? Yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't serve them, but, you know. There's bottles laying around. Sometimes the rules are. The bottle under the couch. <laughs> no, not really. No, this is where you sit down with somebody who happens to be a Republican. How's your wife? You know, your daughter's in college. What, what is she doing? What's she studying? Or, you know, I saw that your aunt said something that moved me or whatever. What? So if we don't have that? If you don't have that, you don't have the lubrication and the trust necessary for doing big things. And we're not doing big things and hardly doing small things. No, so how no. do we get back to that? What, what, do, you, what do you think uh, will get us back? I think it takes uh, 25 senators who want to do it. And, you know, if you're isolated, if you're isolated, for example, Joe Biden tells a story about John McCain, that, you know, they knew each other for a long time. They were good friends. And <clears throat> so Biden is on the floor talking with 
McCain. And uh, they're sitting talking, and they do that on a regular basis on the floor of the Senate. And I think somebody who's in the Democratic leadership said, you know, you really shouldn't be sitting with McCain. And Republican leadership did the same thing with McCain. It's unbelievable. Which is just not—that doesn't produce anything. The experience is sterile. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt has been studying political polarization for over a decade. And during that time, the rift between the left and the right has widened into a chasm. There's a, there's a funny thing going on in our country. It's not funny, it's tragic. Studies that show the degree to which we hate the other side. The surprising finding is that back in the 70s and even into the 80s, people gave very high ratings to their own party, but their ratings of the other party were only a little below the midpoint. They mildly disliked the other mm. party overall on average. Um, and then the, those lines, the sort of the, the cross-partisan dislike lines, they begin sloping up in the 80s and the 90s, and then they accelerate their slope after 2000. So the, the, the 2000s uh, have been really bad for polarization. And so right now, both sides are, are extremely tribal. Both sides are extremely closed-minded. Both sides will attack anyone on their side who shows any nuance. For example, if you're on the left, um, think about the last time a friend of yours said something like, well, you know, I really hate Donald Trump, but I got to admit he was right on points A, B, and C. Like, no, you can't do that. But if tribalism has increased in recent years, its roots are much deeper. Mike Tomasello, who studies how young children bond with their parents and peers, talked in our conversation about the role of evolution in shaping how we see others. In, in human evolution, I would say there are two um, main ways that people feel solidarity for one another. The first is by doing things together and having shared experiences, and that's most basic, and that's what human infants are already doing. And secondly, uh, later in human evolution, we began forming cultures, and we were living in larger groups where we had people that we'd never met before, but they're still one of us because they talk like us, and they dress like us, and they have the same religion, and they eat the same things. And so they're what are sometimes called in-group strangers, but they're still in-group. They're still one of us. And if we're ever in a war, they're going to be on my team. Uh, and so that's based on similarity, similarity of behavior and action. So, so doing things together and sharing experience is one thing, and, and being similar is another. And uh, this um, cultural um, antipathies that we sometimes see are based on they aren't like us. They don't talk like us. They worship some weird something that we don't recognize. Um, and so based on uh, their lack of similarity to us. But I think if we had more shared experiences, uh, those of us who interact with people from different cultures uh, more often, uh, then you see our commonality much more clearly. This idea that it's shared experiences that help bring together even people who are mortal enemies came up a couple of times in our clear and vivid conversations. Here's a famous case. In the late 1990s, after sectarian violence in Northern Ireland had taken thousands of lives, Senator George Mitchell was given the task of trying to bring together the various warring factions. After a month of difficult and mostly fruitless negotiations, there came a turning point. That was uh, a specific occasion where uh, we were at a difficult point uh, at, at a crucial negotiation. And uh, the two major party leaders came to me and said, uh, we have to get away from here because it's impossible for us to make progress 
given the structure of the way things were, were occurring. The negotiations took place in a, an office building that was a British government office building before we took it over. It was surrounded by a fence. There were police and military. We were heavily protected. There was a lot of violence at the time. And just outside the gate, there was a huge press gauntlet, literally a gathering of reporters, television cameras. And so every day, the men and women who were delegates to the peace talks had to pass through that gate. And they were bombarded with reporters. Oh, look, here's what your opponent said last night. Isn't that terrible? You'd never agree to do that, would you? you? And and so on the way in and on the way out, they were subjected to this. And two party leaders said to me, we, we can't succeed. You, Senator Mitchell, have got to figure out a way to get us to a completely private place where we won't have any reporters coming and going and we can come closer together personally. The private place George Mitchell found was the U.S. ambassador's residence in London. They spent almost a week there before the reporters found them. There, uh, I said to the delegate, the leaders, I said, listen, uh, we're going to be here. We don't know how long, but these are long days and nights. We're going to eat our meals together. And what I'm asking you is during the meals, no talk about business. They said, well, what are we going to talk about? I said, well, talk about your kids, talk about your wives, talk about your dogs, talk about your vacations. What do human beings talk about when they're not involved in negotiations to try to end a war? And I also said to them, no sitting all on one side and the other on the other. So we were, we were mixed on both sides. It was awkward at first, but then it kind of worked. They, they, got to, they began to see each other not as part of them, the rival tribe, human beings just like themselves with wives, kids, mortgages, problems at home, issues with their in-laws, whatever the discussion is, sports, music. In one of the discussions, a delegate said to David Trimble, who is then the leader of the largest unionist party uh, at one of these dinners, he said, David, he said, we know you're a big opera fan. Have you been to the opera lately? And then another guy yelled out to me, he said, Senator Mitchell, do you ever go to the opera? And I said, well, it's interesting you should ask. I said, yes, I go to the opera. And I always make it a point to go to the opera the night before I leave the United States to come here to meet with you guys. I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, listen, what I know when I go to the opera, in advance, every word that's going to be spoken or sung. I've seen the opera La Boheme 12 times, and the character Rodolfo says the same thing every single time. I said, and that puts me in a good frame of mind to come and meet with you guys, because I've been with you for years, and I know in advance every word you're going to say, because you say the same thing today <laughs> that you said last week, that you said last year. <laughs> well, they all got a laugh out of it, <laughs> and we kind of had made a little bit of progress uh, humanizing And you them. had these meals together for a whole week? Yeah, for a whole week. Lunch and, uh, lunch lunch and, and dinner. dinner. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. Well enough that it was, as George Mitchell tells us, a turning point in getting what became known as the Good Friday Agreement that ended hostilities in Northern Ireland. I love that story. And I love it not only because it makes Mike Tomasello's point that it's shared experiences that are vital in breaking down tribal barriers, but also because of the role that humor played in relaxing tensions. My friend Letty Pogrebin helps bring people together from opposite sides of another long-running conflict, 
the one between Israelis and Palestinians. Letty calls herself a groupie because she loves to create groups. I'm thinking of a Jewish-Palestinian group that I helped to start back in the 80s. And I remember that a woman came in and she was kind of buzzing with excitement. And we all said, what happened? And she said, my daughter just called me. It's her first menstruation. Hmm. And suddenly we're all talking about our first menstruation. What happened to us? How we felt? Were we shamed? Were we horrified? Were we glad? Did we feel like women? Did we feel besmirched? Did we feel we had lost our childhoods? I mean, there was so much to say. And by the end of that first discussion, I knew those women at a level that probably, you know, people in their family don't know them. We planned after many, many, many hours retreats in which we went through all the issues and all the personal stuff, we decided to plan a trip to the region. The Palestinians would plan what the, what the Jews would see, and the Jews would plan the itinerary mm. for what the uh, Palestinians would see. Mm-hmm. So we Jews planned to take the Palestinians to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem, and into the Knesset. So they could see democracy in action and not think of us all as just colonizers. And the Palestinians planned to take us into a refugee camp and to take us into a daycare center. Mm -hmm. And it was so marvelous because as we walked, and we had to walk in pairs, we walked one Palestinian, one Jew, through Yad Vashem. I had never done that before in all my life. And I'm a child who remembers the Holocaust and lost one third of my family there. Here I am explaining the exhibits to my Palestinian sister, and she's crying. And she's in a place that has been used against her people. Like, how can you Jews who live through the Holocaust do this, what you're doing to us Palestinians? She's used to being combative. She's used to being pushback and militant. And suddenly she sees the world through my eyes. And in the refugee camp, the same thing happened to me. I'm watching her people be pushed by, um, um, what are those things on the end of rifles? Bayonets. Bayonets, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, MASH. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Being pushed by IDF bayonets. Um, being mistreated in a in a refugee camp. This was way back again when Israel controlled everything um, inside uh, before the Oslo Accords. And I'm saying, well, how would I feel if my old uncle was being treated this way? How could these 18 year old Israeli kids be treating somebody this way? I see the world through her eyes. But you can't do that first. What if we had tried to do that trip? Before we had before the you knew who they were as people, exactly. Letty Pogerman and George Mitchell have both been strikingly successful at reducing tribal antagonisms in small groups. They worked intensively with them, often for many weeks or even months. But it's hard to see how that success can be achieved in society at large. A dozen years or so ago, with the dawn of social media, many of us had hopes that the ability to connect everyone with everybody else would usher in a golden age of shared experience. A lot of us thought that, including Jonathan Haidt. 
in the early days, um, they many of us were utopian, like, wow, let's connect everybody. Won't that be great? I mean, this is the direction of history is more connection and the printing press and the telephone and telegram, you know, um, very much the John Lennon view. Imagine if there were no countries, no religion, just all the people connected in one giant social network. Wouldn't it be great? Of course, that's not exactly how it worked out. It's as though somebody reached into the social network, the social fabric that had been slowly evolving um, over, century, you know, over centuries in terms of uh, cultural evolution. Somebody reached in one day in 2006 and just said, let's, let's just take all these connectors, these wires, and let's make them 10 times faster. Or let, let's connect people 10 times more. And let's see what happens. Of course, that was the year that Facebook opened up to the world. And instead of opening up society, the opposite has happened. We've seen social media like Facebook become a way for people to retreat even further into their own bubbles. So can we actually do anything about tribalism? Something at a higher level, say at a level of government that has a broad impact. We didn't come up with any surefire answers so far in the shows we've posted, but there may be a clue in our first show from next season. Here's a short preview of my conversation with Madeleine Albright, and it turns out the answer may still be in the realm of person to person. I, I heard somewhere, read somewhere, that you had spent a lot of time with Jesse Helms, with whom you, I'm sure, yeah. disagreed on many, many points, but... Did you you had a, a cordial relationship that you could build on? I am so glad you brought that up because it's a very good example of something. Um, what happened was that when I was ambassador at the United Nations, I had been asked to go and speak at a women's college in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what happened was Senator Helms called in order to follow up on the invitation. And I, I have to admit, I actually thought I could get out of it by saying, you know, I'd be happy to do it if you go with me. And he, he said, that's a really interesting idea. I'll call you back. So then he calls back and he says, I've changed my schedule. I'm going to go with you. So then what happens is it's very hard if somebody is introducing you to say, um, this is the stupidest, nastiest person I've ever met. So he gave me <laughs> a nice introduction. Um, and then uh, we we went through this whole thing together, and we're flying back, and he said, you know what, I think it'd be great if you came uh, to my alma mater some point. It's called Wingate College. And I said, sure. So he came, he picked me up in Raleigh, and we started driving around North Carolina looking for barbecue places. And we finally get there, and he had um, had a hip replacement or something and was having trouble getting out of the car. So I was helping him get out of the car, and the press took this picture of me hanging on to him, and they said, this is the odd couple. Mm -hmm. So then my name comes up to be Secretary of State, and, um, you know, that you have to go around and meet the members that are going to vote on you. So I went to see him, and he said, Ms. Madeline, we will make history together. There's a lot more from Madeleine Albright in the delightful conversation we had that will start season four. That season will be available on June 4th. And other guests in season four will include Carol Burnett, Adam Driver, the creators of the podcast Ear Hustle, Katie Couric, and many more.
This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.